Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking to Aidan Kniff about low-code development. This is an early adopter research podcast where we cover things of interest to early adopters and all sorts of other technology. So, Aidan, you are working on a project called Optic. Uh, you can find out more about it at useoptic.com, but what is the project and how did you get interested in it? Yeah, so Optic is a tool for programmers, um, and it, we're trying to bring some of the promises of low-code development to the programmer within their current workflow. So Optic is uh, a really smart code generator that can actually read your code as well as help you generate it. Um, so it can help you maintain the code it generates over the long period of time that you're using it for. So this is really interesting because when you think of the word low code, almost everybody who's using the word low code or no code is trying to bring people who don't code or people who are, have low skills in coding in order to the world of software development. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing is you're actually saying, how can we make people who do code, code less? So your, your, your target audience is a, is a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, um, so I actually started on, on the other side of it. I made a low-code tool called DropSource, and what I realized from that is that almost always uh, you'll, you'll reach sort of a limit of these platforms and end up having to maintain the code yourself or convince the platform developer to add features that you need. Um, and it just didn't seem very scalable to me long term. So I thought, okay, the problem isn't that people want to do visual development. The problem is that coding is you know, laborious. It takes a lot of time and developers get caught up doing the same things over and over again. So how do we make this, you know, every single developer more productive and let them focus on the work that really matters and use sort of the automation tools we have to automate the code that they're already writing? Okay, uh, well before we go to the new model, let's talk a little bit about what you learned from DropSource. Mm -hmm. Now, the way I think of low-code development is something where you are creating a model of the world you're trying to attack. So, in most low-code platforms, there's some simplified model of the UI, mm -hmm. there's some simplified model of the data, and then there's some simplified programming model, usually that starts off relatively general, but then eventually you get a bunch of things I call them kitchen gadgets, mm -hmm. to do various types of things. Yeah. And then to become a master of a well-developed low-code platform, what you have to do is know all this surface area. You have to know the whole, mm -hmm. all the tricks about how to make a, the UI do what you want, all the tricks about how to model the data that you, the way you want it, and all the kitchen gadgets to do the stuff in between. And so what happens, though, is even though it's low-code and you're not writing a lot of code, the surface area of all of the knobs and dials becomes rather massive. And you know the the somebody who knows it can go really fast and really far, but it's it's almost as if low code doesn't simplify things because it, it creates a large number of tools. What, what what was your experience in drop source and and in, in, in that dynamic? Yeah, I mean we basically saw the exact uh, paradigm that you're talking about. So we made a lot of things really simple. Uh, we had a great model where you could basically. You know, drag your data onto your app and sort of have it be a drag and drop UI element. Um, so that made it really easy to link up sort of an arbitrary number of APIs and data sources. Um, but what we found is, you know, every time someone would ask for a feature, the way that we'd have to add it to our to our system wouldn't necessarily be, uh, you know, as easy as I thought it should be. And that was because to, to build a general abstraction, we'd have to do things in like a scalable way. So we could do all these one-off things, but then it wouldn't scale, and we couldn't add a lot of features or we'd end up making it so that we could add a lot of features very quickly, but then the things that wouldn't be as easy and end up just looking like code without actually writing code. Um, so what we found is that over time, to be very productive on our system and most low-code systems, people are learning all the same concepts as programmers, 
they're just doing it with drag and drop. Um, and the, the models actually aren't that different once you sort of stand them up next to each other. And how, in your, in your, the customers that use this, how often did you use it? Was it used as a IT or developer productivity tool? And how often was it used by people who really didn't know about coding? In our experience, now we were a no-code generator, so we didn't let people write any of their own custom code. Um, and we found that in that market, it was mostly people who sort of had no other recourse. So they couldn't get developer resources in their company. They didn't have the money to afford it for whatever they were doing. So this was sort of their last resort for making an application. Um, and that put them in sort of an, an interesting area where they were willing to put up with a lot of the problems because they had no other way, but it definitely wasn't the most efficient way from a time standpoint that they could have built the app. Now, now you had a realization. You, 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 you sold this company, DropSource, and who bought it? I sold it to my investors, so I just exited personally to work on some new stuff. Okay, so you were taken out by your investors, and they, they continue to run the yeah. software, and it's, and it's focused on mobility applications, right? That's right, yeah. We do native iOS and Android apps, um, and they've been able to move it more upmarket. We've got some enterprise clients now, um, but there's still, you know, the bread and butter is still people who are non-programmers building it. Okay, so now all of a sudden you looked at what's going on with programming and you said, wait a sec, from the conversations we've already had, it looks like what people have been trying to do when they focus on improving the life of programmers is make it easier to learn a programming language. Yeah. And then what you've said is, wait a sec, it's not about learning a programming language, it's about making the process of coding more systematic, more automated, more uniform, so that you factor out lots of things that reduce productivity and reduce quality, and then you allow people to work on just that part of the program that's actually adding value. So how does it actually work? What do you, how do you actually achieve that? Yeah, so we've used a lot of the advancements in machine learning and pattern matching to allow Optic to basically read your code. So it'll look at code, you know, maybe for your back end, and it'll say, okay, here's the API. Like, it goes from just the raw code to... Okay, Sure. Okay, cool. Guess we have five minutes left. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'll go through, it'll look at the code, and it'll say, okay, um, here's, you know, here's the code that represents our API. Here's how the code that represents, you know, your GUI, all this stuff. And it can recognize that it's already there. So you can add stuff to it, you can change it around, and it's still going to be able to be read by Optic. And because Optic can read it, we can present a higher level abstraction that you can interact with. So, for instance, if you highlight over, you know, a model, it'll read out all the fields in that model and then say, hey, do you want to generate CRUD routes for these? Uh, so create, read, update, delete routes in your API. You just hit the button, there's no manual input. It'll just read the code like a developer would and then write the code based on that. And when you say routes, what do you mean by like a route? Like an H like a endpoint in a backend. Um, so like the get this, whatever, post this, whatever. Okay, so you, so you, you, you were able to write um, simplified APIs on top of the lower level APIs. Exactly, so you sort of build this entire application. When you think about what an app is, it's just like basically transforming one kind of code into another. So you go from you know, your, your user model to an API that creates instances of those users, that goes to forms that show up in your app, that go to validation code, and all this stuff is dependent on one another. So Optic can basically take one thing, turn it into the next thing you might need, and then over time, because it's able to read your code, if you change something, like let's say we change our API, Optic will generate a pull request that updates all the related code on your front end and other systems that consume that API. 
So all that sort of manual, tedious moving stuff around is being automated. So all programmers really have to think about is the design of their system and some of the complicated algorithms and stuff they're building on top of this. And so it's as if you take and you created um, these sort of standardized units, but instead of collapsing that standardized unit into something different, you actually leave it there as a standardized piece of code that the developer knows is not something they should touch. Well, that's the thing is they can they actually can touch it. Right, but so, but, but 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 then you lose the ability no, to do some of the other stuff. Yeah, you don't use you don't lose the ability. Okay, that's really what makes Optic special is it's treating every piece of code sort of independently. So if the developer adds stuff in certain places, it's still able to work in this whole bigger system. And that's really it can recognize the part of the pattern that's still in in place. Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, that will get very technical if I explain it all now, but it can recognize the pattern. Even if it's been changed, there's some obviously some like crazy changes you could do. Like if you change that, that an apple to the, an orange, make the pattern unrecognized. Exactly, but you know, for for most of the use cases, it's going to still work. And this really is just an accelerator. So I think about DevOps a lot because if um, you know, if you look at what's happened in DevOps the last ten years, all the IT people used to manually configure all their servers, and it was you know thousands of people you know working on this one problem, and now it's a script. And developers love that because it automated all the stuff that was very routine and that they didn't enjoy doing. I almost see Optic as the same kind of thing for programming. You can configure your application to work and to be written in such a way that it scales however you want it to, but all that sort of boring in-between work you're doing, the scaffolding, the boilerplate, all this stuff, can just be completely taken care of. Now, when you do this, what you're essentially doing is you're creating this, you're taking a code base and making it much more systematic, much more uh, uniform. Mm -hmm. And so there's been some really interesting things done where people have taken like language like data log yeah. and used that as a way of expressing constraints about you know, mm -hmm. queries yeah. and then implemented the data log language on top of something like cascading. Uh -huh. And there's an open source project called Cascalog yeah. where you can identify a bunch of things you want to get out of your data lake, uh -huh. and then it will compile and create a whole pipeline to get it out. Yeah. And so it seems like that one, one of the things you're doing is you're, by making that source code more systematic, you're paving the way for creating on top of it domain-specific languages or other higher-level low-code constructs uh -huh. so that you can now then have somebody express their requirements in this domain-specific language, but then when and then, then that directs the, 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 the surface area of the code you've written, and so you have these kind of cascading levels of abstraction. Yeah. Um, have you found anybody that's doing that with your with Optic yet? Yeah, so we did a, a launch Hacker News a couple of days ago, and we had like a whole slew of companies that now see the potential because Optic sort of goes two-way, and they want to build on top of it. So Optic, they'll be able to read stuff out of Optic to show in their DSL or visual language, and then when you change it there, it can save that back into Optic by writing real code. Uh, well, not back into Optic, but back into their code base. So I really, you sort of jumped ahead to like our long-term goal here, but Optic is really gonna be an API for your code. So that maybe Salesforce needs that API to help build an app on top of your code base or help you configure options for something. Maybe it's a low-code generator, maybe it's a no-code generator, but the idea is like, instead of these big monoliths that try to control your entire code base, there could be very specific micro-editors that just sort of pop up, like you do something in a DSL or in a visual tool, hit save, and then it's just gonna save as real code into your project. And some of those things might be used by developers, but some of them might also be best used by a designer. So imagine if a designer could basically open up 
in Sketch or Figma, one of these visual tools, your application, change a few things, hit save, and then instead of it just saving an image, it'll actually save a pull request that goes to the developer to approve or reject. So, if you look at the history of like major enterprise software that's been mm -hmm. successful, a lot of it has all been about creating an, a proprietary language mm -hmm. that actually allows somebody to have the abstractions that allow generations of technology to change underneath, mm -hmm. but the application to stay and live in its you know sophistication. Mm -hmm. And so, ABAP is the SAP way of doing that. Yeah. And then at Salesforce, they have Apex, you know, which is their own language on top of their Force.com platform. Yeah. And so. What you're really opening the door to is now, if I'm Citibank or JP Morgan or, or Walmart, what I can do is I can create my own domain-specific language for warehouse applications or supply chain or certain types of risk management. And instead of having to be constrained by some application some vendor's giving me, I can actually write code but not be in this, not be, not have to be as much of a software engineering firm as I would have otherwise without it. You, it seems like you can lower the cost of having really powerful applications. Yeah, so some of our early users have uh, sort of figured that out on their own, and they're storing like the high-level constructs in, um, we have a markdown importer, basically. So they're writing, like, here's what our user model looks like, here's all the routes we want on our API, or whatever, in markdown. Optics reading in that structured markdown, and then they can use that as a target to target whatever programming language that they want to that we support. So, like, if they wanted to switch to a new language or a new framework or whatever, they could bring in these same constructs, and it just it lowers the cost of switching something like that dramatically. So, we've had a customer even uh, do something like this to convert an entire old REST SOAP backend into a GraphQL backend. And they did it in like two weeks, whereas this would have, you know, halted the presses for two years if they had done it by hand with their programmers the original way. Got it. And so, so you can um, also handle a heterogeneous language environment. Yeah. So if you have certain APIs that work in certain languages and other APIs that work in other languages, you can create on top of that a surface area that where you can de declare your requirements and then sort of compile down into those separate languages. Yeah, one of our early customers we're playing around with right now, um, can't mention them until they've you know officially announced they're using this, but they've got several hundred distinct applications in their environment, and they're all written in different languages. Optics going through right now and auto-documenting that just by reading the code and figuring out what the APIs are, and the idea is that any of the developers in their organization can now say, I need the API to you know look up a customer's issue or something, they type that into a little search engine we have, and it'll give them the code to do that. And no one programmed that, no one wrote documentation, it's just Optic reading the code and then helping generate it. And the beautiful thing about the system is whenever that API that the developer chose changes, they're gonna get a pull request automatically through the CI pipeline that says, hey, this is updated, you better change your code. Now, how do you deal with the, you know, the regular CI pipeline issues such as you know, test coverage and writing tests and things like this. Obviously, it's a great thing to be able to auto-generate code, but it's got to be correct. Yeah. It's got to not cause problems. So how do you, I mean, what's the approach to quality control? Uh-huh. So, first of all, we never patch any code without a developer approving it. So that's sort of bringing the, the expert into the system because there may be issues that we just can't foresee based on the way a code is written. Um, but we'll also help you generate tests, too. So just like anything else, I mean, there's a certain kind of code that has a certain set of standard tests you could write about it, and Opti can help you generate some of those tests as well. 
Okay, and then um, what do you think the long-term effect of this is going to have on development? So I think the what we'll see is that most people are going to be writing um, the most important code. They're not going to be spending time on things that are boilerplate or sort of easy for Optic to automate. I think that's a big win for developers because there's always going to be more work to do. Um, and no one's going to lose a job because of this. I mean, at the end of the day, there's just going to be more opportunity and more things they can try, and every organization will be able to move a lot faster because of tools like this. Um, but I also think there's going to be a whole new sort of change in the low-code market where you're going to see more atomic tools. Like, you know, right now, if you sold a tool that just automated one part of our code base, it would be really hard to do because people are looking for this general automation. I think Optic will be a platform where it's almost like the app store. If you want to automate you know, your, your responsive layouts, uh, you can download some, something that will help you do responsive layouts really quickly. If you want to do you know, some sort of security compliance really quickly, there'll be knowledge you can download for that. Um, and I think it's going to create sort of a, a much, more, um, much less monolithic sort of low-code environment that companies can sort of pick whatever pieces they need and integrate that knowledge into their code base. Well, thanks, Aiden. This is really an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your getting together with us at Early Adopter Research. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay, so I want to ask one more question just yeah. on the tape while it's running. You mentioned that you did a migration from a uh, uh, SOAP API thing to a GraphQL. Yeah. That's really interesting because I've been, that's, that's another one of the things yeah. I'm really interested in is graph databases. Uh-huh. And I just did a, a, a speech at um, yeah. at a uh, um, uh, I did a speech for Neo4j. Gotcha. Uh, uh, at a tour they gave. Uh-huh. And so, now, what you talked about is really interesting. How would you go from an, a, you know, API, so you said it was a SOAP-based? It was like a SOAP-RESTful, a little Re- bit of both. Yeah. SOAP-RESTful API, that's a whole different paradigm than GraphQL, uh-huh. which is like, you know, you have a different yeah. structure, different whole different database. Yeah. So it's it's not clear that there's a one-to-one mapping yeah. between SOAP APIs and GraphQL because they're Definitely. so different. Yeah. So, so how is, I mean, I assume there wasn't a one-to-one mapping, yeah. but you assisted in yeah. the transformation. There was a few things here and there that they yeah. wanted to do by hand because yeah. of that. Yeah. But, um, so I how mean, did that work? Really what we did is we, we were able to automatically read that API and then they had a controlled way that they decided that they wanted each thing to translate. So we spent like six hours with their head developers, and they said, okay, every time we do this kind of like get call for this object, like here's a sort of GraphQL query we wanted to generate. So we were able to figure out a good mapping between the two, and then there's a script in Optic called a transformation where you can take one kind of code and make it into another. So we basically will transform all those individual routes into a wrapper that allowed it to work with GraphQL. So there's still SOAP and REST routes underneath, but um, on top of it is a GraphQL interface that they're able to use on their front end because a lot of the different routes and stuff are... Uh, oh, okay. So, so, so you're basically implementing a GraphQL query engine, yeah. but underneath it, you would yeah. translate it into... Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's what most people are doing because like, there's not really a GraphQL endpoint. There's usually just like... Um, there's an old API that needs to be sort of GraphQLized. Got it, got it. Okay. That's what GitHub did too with their uh, GraphQL endpoint. It's not... It just wraps sort of the other stuff that they have. So is this going anywhere? We'll have to see how the quality is. But uh, yeah, no, I'm going to definitely do... Yeah. We'll probably have to redo it in a different yeah. environment. I'm happy to do it again if, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. if the sound of 